All right, three, two, one, and we are officially on. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the True Leisure Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about universal behaviors. And by universal behaviors, uh, I mean behaviors that are common within multiple groups or multiple communities all over the world that would otherwise have very little in common. Because what we often see is we often have these universal behaviors, whether it's things like, you know, handshakes or hugging or, you know, any sort of display of affection or brotherhood or partnership. A lot of these behaviors that we exhibit as humans tend to be quite common from culture to culture, even though, you know, the the two cultures or the cultures may be completely different. So, yeah, that's just what we're going to be talking about. It's going to be uh, semi, uh, semi, uh, presentation kind of discussion, but also, uh, it's going to be nice to just, you know, talk about these things because we are all from, uh, different cultures. So it'd be uh, nice to, you know, examine each other's cultures and see what's common between us and what isn't. So, um, I'm going to pass the torch off to Alex so he can get us started. Okay, thank you. Um, to start off, I wanted to take a look at what define universal behaviors and stuff a little bit more closely. So, it's not uh, literally universal, right? Because literal universality isn't really possible, right? right? That's kind of stepping into Plato's mysticism at that point, right? Because it's mm-hmm. that's ignoring different factors and diversity among groups of people, like divergence. So when we're talking about like universal, we're not talking about like literally everybody does this. Another thing is there are two factors towards human behavior that I can I can imagine, right? There's biological heritage, so you know, genetics and being of the state of, you know, being homo sapien or whatever. And they're also cultural inheritance. So when you're growing up, stuff like um, practices rearing children or different societal expectations. So I think that there's there's universal behaviors that are like biologically inherited, like things like that don't rely on cultures like intermingling. Stuff like smiling when you're happy or doing certain social cues, like looking away from somebody when there's a so- sort of social tension, right? Stuff like... Um, believe that Kosh mentioned earlier, like hugging and stuff like that, like seeking touch during intimacy, right? 
And then there are things like, what do you guys think would be an example of things that are widespread socially, but they're as a result of cultural inheritance, like different cultures mingling? One example I could think of to like start it off would be different brands or stuff like toothpaste, you know? I would say um, in terms of, you know, things that are very widespread throughout society is uh, music. I think different musical traditions from different communities and different, you know, groups. It's quite widespread, just the idea of making music, but how you make it is uh, very different when you look at culture to culture. Uh, so when I was at Berkeley, I took actually studied Balinese music and a lot of um, the Balinese tradition, what they use is um, they use a lot of uh, striking instruments. So whether like uh, there's, you know, different types of instruments where you would use like uh, wooden sticks to strike uh, a bronze or a metal, any type of metal surface that would make a, a large echoing sound. So, you know, gongs, things like that. And it's it's very uh, stick staccato type music because of that. Whereas, you know, things like, you know, in Indian musical tradition, it's quite a, uh, there's very little staccato used. It's very legato, which is the blending of the notes because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, um, string instruments that are used within India. So there's a lot of sliding. There's a lot of, uh, um, you know, just very little of staccato patterns. It's very it's very smooth and flowing as opposed to a bit rigid like Balinese music. And I think American music, because, okay. because of the fact that, you know, different groups have brought their music to America, I think American music, uh, the history of, Amer- of music in America... It has a little bit of both of those things. So what you, you would see, like, for example, in jazz, there's, uh, you know, you or in classical music, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of legato, which is like, you know, using the violin and it's very flowing and it's very flowing. And uh, whereas in, you know, certain other musical sort of traditions that are present in America, like for example, blues, or if you're singing blues, there's a type of uh, type of singing within blues called blues scatting, which is uh, quite uh, rigid, where you talk like you pronounce the notes very staccato-like, and I think that's pretty interesting as to how these different groups and different cultures have come together to form a very different and very widespread musical tradition in America. And I think it's very representative of, you know, the overall view of American society is that it's a melting pot of different cultures. Right. I guess you could say that a an affinity for music is a universal trait of being yeah. human. But I mean, it, yeah, there's a lot of diversity, right? I mean, just an affinity for art in general, as I would say, like not even like just yeah. music. Music is like a part of that, obviously, but just an affinity for art, uh, because 
when you look at painting styles, if you look at Renaissance style painting, there's a lot of realism involved. Uh, European style painting, there's a lot of realism. But if you actually look at some of the paintings of uh, like Mughalai paintings or like uh, Persian style paintings, it's actually not posed towards realism. There's a lot of uh, side view sort of paintings where the the subject is facing sideways and then it's a side profile painting there's a lot of side like so many of persian and islamic style paintings have been side uh, profile paintings whereas in renaissance it's um it's just everything it's a lot of realism involved and i think that's that's very interesting oh yeah from um there was a sort of genre like shift right because right the the stuff you're talking with um you know persian paintings they're sort of like they're like a side view you think of like egyptian pottery or egyptian like hieroglyphics or whatever right they aren't Mm -hmm. representational art right Mm -hmm. like what a realistic uh, renaissance painting would look like yeah Where, where they try to emulate nature as closely as possible it's more representational yeah it's it's not representational it's more um abstract right it's more capturing something that can't be captured with words i guess which is i guess the how in western culture we sort of transitioned from uh like renaissance realism to stuff like impressionism Mm -hmm. and like postmodernism and stuff like that right and i think another thing that's quite interesting is that one thing that i've noticed with persian go ahead one thing that i've noticed in terms of persian style paintings is that uh there's very little focus on the surroundings it's mostly the entire focus is on the subject matter whereas with renaissance paintings there's quite a lot of detail put into the surroundings so I think that's also an interesting, and especially, you know, like you talked about the shift with European paintings, right? Like there were, how there was a shift from representing divinity because, you know, that's another aspect where we can talk about is religion and spirituality, right? That religion is a very uh, widespread social uh, phenomenon. And th- there was a switch from European uh, in European art from representing the divinity with halos and things like that to representing the man more. Right. I think the concept of like how art is inherently satisfying would be cool to talk about. Like there's a lot of evolutionary reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there's a reason that art is what it is. There's auditory, there's visual, there's, you know, culinary, right? Mm-hmm. So something like visual painting, like a theory for why visual painting is so, like we have an affinity for something like that, is right. that when our ancestors looked out from a hill or something like that 
and saw green pastures and or or you know people or other things like that that's associated with prosperity comfort right yeah and then for auditory it's i've i've heard one theory that the reason that we enjoy rhythm so much is because it reminds us of our mother's heartbeat in the womb. Mm-hmm. So, um, anything that uh, Ethan or G you guys want to talk about, we can totally transition. It doesn't have to flow with whatever we're talking. I was just going to just like affirm that yeah every culture has like music but it's also very different and that's just that could just be because of the you know the like the different styles that have been developed there like i know um well in in my study of music theory the it's been kind of discerned that like on the the west on the western um people more tend to enjoy music that is written with like major scales, but in the East, especially in like China and Mongolia, they often have um, more minor compositions. And um, I've like looked into certain minor compositions, not just from that region, but also um, in like black metal. And it's very different because you know, we associate minor, the minor scale with being saddening and the major scale with being more happy. And I've like deduced this. I did my own study um, in senior year of high school and I came to this conclusion as well. But in the, and from other regions, it's sort of like flipped in a sense. So I always found that very interesting. And I, um, I like your theory that um, percussion and rhythm could be associated with the mother's heartbeat. Because, see, in music, the most common, like most standard, um, I would say, time signature is 4-4. Four, four. So that's kind of like, it's just 1-2-3-4, 1-2-3-4, 1-2-3-4. And that's, I would say that's similar to a heartbeat in almost. It's like one, two, three, four, whereas the one is sort of like a dotted quarter note and the other one is um, more of like an eighth note. Like, yeah. I can see, the, I can see the, um, the resemblance. And uh, I was just imagining like <laughs> a blast beating a heart rhythm with, uh, with the kick, double kick drums. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I I think it's very interesting something that you said about, you know, the minor scale and the major scale being kind of switched. And, you know, I wonder if that may be because the West has a bit of a more rigid structure when it comes to music, because Western music doesn't use as much uh, improv as Eastern music does. And I can only speak for Indian music because I haven't researched other Eastern musical traditions as much. But 
I think the best way I can describe it is like Western music. You learn how to play compositions of famous composers. If we're talking about classical music, like for example, Beethoven or Mozart, and they've already have created compositions and everybody plays those created compositions word for word, uh, not word for word, but note for note, basically in the West, whenever there's an orchestra and in the Eastern traditions and in Indian traditions, there's very little of that. There's no playing it note for note. It's actually very, it's most, a lot of it is improvisation to, to the point where one performance of the same piece might will will not be the same the next day if you were per, per, to perform it again. That's how much like improv there is. And the best way I can explain it with an analogy is that let's say if you have the Mona Lisa, right? And you're given colors, the same colors that were used to paint the Mona Lisa. And then you're asked to paint the Mona Lisa stroke for stroke. That's how I envision Western music. Whereas with Eastern music, it's you're given a blank canvas, but you're given the same colors, but you can make whatever you want out of those colors. And each day you, it's going to be something different, even though the colors are the same the scope of using those colors is infinite. And in terms of, you know, when we talk about music and melodies and harmonies, Western music uses quite a bit of, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on harmony in the West as opposed to the East, because East is a very, uh, Eastern music, Indian music is a very melodic sort of musical tradition. There's not, there's very little harmony used. Um, and because most of the emphasis is on the voice and there's, uh, and whenever there's instrument accompaniment, they, they don't harmonize. They just play the melody that the voice is singing. So yeah, I think that's all I have for music. G, do you have anything to say? I was just going to add on. Yeah, I was going to mention, like, because because both of you and I, Akash, we're sick. And yeah. both of us were brought, like, raised. Um, and sort of, like, I would say put into a position by our parents where we tr- were learning Girtan. Mm-hmm. Girtan is... Um, basically like sick holy music that's how i understand it anyway mm-hmm. and um the diff like i the, see the difference between me and akash is i studied music in my younger years but i never like felt like pursuing it after that whereas akash was more he still like does girtan to this day and I feel like there's a reason for that. And it's because, like you said, it's an Eastern art, right? It's an, mm-hmm. it's an Eastern form of music. So the way you were taught was you were given, like, all of these um, rags or scales. You were given all of these tools to make the music. And mm-hmm. you were left to experiment using verses out of the Guru Granth Sahib, which is our holy scripture. But for me, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. I didn't have as much like freedom when doing Shabbats or songs. Basically, for me, 
it was the way I learned Kirtan was more uh, like the Western style. It was more formulaic. It was more you had to follow everything. You had to make sure you got the right note. You had to make sure you got the right um, word. Make sure you're singing on the same uh, like measure as this note is being played. And if you mess up once during the performance, you're embarrassed and you've committed a sin. And that's just how I've been like taught how to perform music. So it became stressful just having to, um, I guess, perform perfectly and on the level of the people who've created these shavads. And so that's, I guess, uh, my, my own anecdotal experience. Yeah. Maybe the rigidity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's the rigidity. And I will say I still, yeah, I still pursue music. I still, I consider myself to be a musician because of like, I make compositions with guitar and drums, like metal and rock songs. But for the other, I don't know. I still have the connotation that Kirtan is supposed to be something that's rigid when, so that's why I've never really gone back to it. Whereas for in reality, it's more free flowing. And if you mess up, well, you just kind of roll with it. Like even if you hit the wrong key, you just go back to the right key, and it sometimes makes the comp- makes the song even better. <laughs> like, Akash, yeah, you no, can, I mean, you can I, speak I, I a get... little bit more about your Kirtan experience. Yeah, I mean, definitely, it's it's. Um, I think the teacher can like make a make or break a student. Um, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer in that, and I haven't had just one teacher over the years. I've had like s- multiple, and. It actually only my sort of interest in Kirtan and just music in general really took off when I started learning when I was 12, which which is where the actual sort of rigidity aspect of it sort of melted away. And when I started learning from that teacher, he taught me we would have discussions on music, which is not something I'd had before. And it became more about personal enjoyment and personal fulfillment rather than, you know, putting on a performance for, I mean, there was that aspect too, but most of it was about personal fulfillment. And I think that's where, I mean, I had a a teacher before that would say that I'm going to punch you if you mess up. So, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, he never, um... he never did punch us, but it's, there was, there was that rigidity there that, uh, which I think I think there's a time and a yeah. place for that. I think rigidity is something that should happen with it because see it's a different because I can't exactly explain to people what the tradition of learning from a teacher is within India. It's because it, it's it's very different. There's no you know there it's not just you go to class and then and then you know you learn and then bye bye. In India, there's like a huge discipline behind it. You know, you, you, you live with your teacher, you serve your teacher, you have to, you know, and then in exchange for that, you have to, in exchange for like giving your service, giving your life to your teacher, your teacher teaches you the music and it's a huge discipline. And I think a lot of the musical teachers that have, uh, that are in the West right now, they've learned in that style. So they've sort of had that aspect of rigidity in their teaching, but they sort of push it a bit too early on 
to the point where it scares the student rather than inspiring them. And I think that's what, I think that's something that should be emphasized in every sort of art form or any sort of teaching in general is you need to, you want to inspire the teacher, uh, inspire the student, not inspire the teacher. Yeah. But yeah, G. Have you, have you guys seen Whiplash? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. <no>. Yeah. <laughs> where he throws the chair at him. True rigidity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then we have this drummer who's just like so obsessed with trying to please his teacher that he harms himself by continuing to drum. <laughs> yeah. Great movie. Yeah. All right. Ethan, so, um, so music is music and art is one. Music and art is one universal behavior. What are some other universal behaviors that come to mind? Ethan, do you have um, any ideas? Well, uh, I think art is probably one of those like higher level types of uh, universal behaviors. Like, uh, obviously, there's. Making food, which is actually a big part of like everybody's life, just because well, one you need for subs like sustenance, but also you want it to taste good. Like when you're making a meal, the first thing you think of is how do I make it so I want to eat this again, and it's also practical. So I know previously we all did the cooking episode, and I think we've all improved a little bit since then. Uh, recently, some of us got together, and that chili was really good, but very scary nutritionally. Uh, I remember yesterday at work, uh, my body was not having it. <laughs> like, I felt very uncomfortable. You know what I mean? You didn't really I don't put know that you much. You didn't really put anything bad in it, right? Yeah, it's just like something about it. It could have been the placebo or like. I don't. I actually have no idea what you guys put in it. Yeah, it's just chilies and like turkey. Wait, that was turkey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we we like deseeded a bunch of the the peppers and then just cooked the the peppers in the water. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. Ethan came a little bit late, so he didn't see us uh, make the chili. But yeah, no, I I would definitely agree that like cooking. In my experience, I don't. I hate cooking. I don't like cooking. It's tedious and not worth it. I'd rather just eat garbage, and just have that sustain me. But I will say, cooking is a very social experience, and I enjoy yeah. cooking with friends. Making the chili, making the chicken wings, making the cake—that was all like. It was fun because we were able to talk while we were just doing like boring work, like. Uh, cutting onions or um like you know getting the lemon zest and all that yeah and bro you know i don't handle spice i don't handle spicy food very well so it was it's always funny just watching me suffer after uh getting the first taste you're gonna get excommunicated from the indian community if you don't improve your spice for not handling spice Yeah. yeah that's a little messed up to be fair but yo what what I, is I remember, chili though like even i like that's a good question because so, like, my only experience chili before that was just 
Uh, uh, sorry. Like, I've had chili that was, like, primarily, like, beans and um, tomatoes and, like, not a whole lot of chili. But then this chili is more, I think, like, standard, where it's literally just cooked chili with extra stuff in it. And um, so it, it's nice having, like, different styles. And I think it kind of ties into our topic how a lot of, like, cultures could have dishes that are reminiscent of each other, but are still, like, very starkly different. Because, like, I like, my experience with, like, chili... Well, I haven't had I haven't had chili, but like I saw chili like for the first time when I was watching The Office. I had heard of it, but like I was watching The Office, and there's that one scene where uh, Kevin, that one guy, he brings like a huge like drum of chili, and then it drops on the floor, and then he sp- and it just spills all over. Mythical delicacy. Yeah, and I thought it was Rajma. <laughs> And rajma is like for those of y'all that don't know is uh it's just like this kidney bean dish that we have in India. So yeah, I just want to quickly like glance over the idea of bread because every culture has like yes. a grain, right? Yep. Or they have some like major formation from grain Mm -hmm. you know in the east there's rice in india and in um the middle east there's um well for us we call it rotina but it's also called other things like brontas and uh chapatis and then of course there's like standard loaves of bread which you cut you forgot you you forgot the most artisan bread which one you forgot. You forgot nan bread. Nan, nan, nan. Okay, it's okay. nan. It's nan bread. Okay, you, you. I seen it at like my Indian store. Uh, we went right. We we went to the Indian store and it was nan bread, frozen nan breads, like like five a pack. And it was also <laughs> that. Uh, there was also that that the the I don't know what you guys call it. The the matar paneer. It was frozen also. But uh, yeah, well, we went to an Indian restaurant. <laughs> I went to an Indian restaurant and I asked for the waiter for some nan bread and some matar paneer, and he he was like, "Sir, what are you what are you saying?" And I'm like, "Nan bread, you know, like the 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 thing, the 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 white like bread thing. It kind of looks like a pita bread, but it's not really a pita bread because it's from India. It's like it's called nan, but yeah." <laughs> Pita and you, you just like brought up pita and naan and yeah all those and I was also gonna mention tortillas like yeah just oh, everyone has some kind of bread everyone has some kind of protein yeah I will say I've never heard anyone pronounce it that way. that was uh, impressive my gosh thank you for enlightening us. Maybe the more like in the Midwest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That I would believe. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it, I think it also depends. Like there's different cultures have like, when we talk about bread, it's like leavened versus unleavened. So like India has a lot of unleavened bread. 
like rotis, whereas uh, or like mm-hmm. tortillas. What does that mean? Or um, unleavened is a uh, without yeast, just flour and water. Okay. So um, yeah, I think I think that's what it means. Hold on. Don't uh, before I look like an idiot on the podcast. Let me look this up. I mean, we don't know either. I wonder how much of it is. Yes. Okay. I'm sure a lot of it is based on cultural or or environmental like availability of the grain, right? Yeah. And even in America, yeah. In the case of, sorry. Old world versus new world, like, we haven't even discovered it yet. And I wonder how much, something about, like, music taste is nostalgic, right? Yeah. So I'm wondering how much of culinary taste, literally, is uh, nostalgic as well, like, cultural There's always the phrase, like, just like a mother used to make, you know? Yeah. Like, there's something inherently better about food. Yeah, and even, even like, the different, like, places of America, like, if you go to the South, there's cornbread, right? And there's not yeah. as much of a, a culture of cornbread, no? I don't know, in, you know, California. Yeah. Cornbread is disgusting, in my opinion. If I'm thinking of the right thing, the thing is, uh, like, I've had decent cornbread, but it just has a lot of sugar in it. Yeah, yeah. I feel like if no, you want like good cornbread, you have to kind of go to the south because everybody who I've like seen has eaten cornbread, has loved it. So, I guess it's kind of like the same. Like, you can't judge like Mexican food by like, Taco Bell. So you can't judge cornbread by like a Californian mm-hmm. restaurant. But I, fair, it's California food is kind of high. Then. Yeah. Like I'd have to agree with Ethan. Yeah, our standards are pretty high, and we do have like a lot of farms. We're very so. bougie. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> agriculture is huge. Just for every culture. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Put put it this way. The Japanese come to California to eat sushi. All I gotta say. Really? Really? Yes. Because our fish is fattier. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a flex and a half. That's cool. <laughs> mean, meanwhile, you guys are planning to go to Japan to try like <laughs> Wagyu or actual wasabi. Oh god, the wagyu! <laughs> oh, I don't What's know, man. Wagyu is a hit. It's scary. It's so rich. It's apparently like the best beef in the world. Oh gosh. Oh, well, what makes it better At than? At least like, that's what I've been told. It's made with love. Genuinely, like they Different, massage uh, their cattle. Yeah. That oh yeah, yeah. Like I heard about that. Bread. Yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> Meanwhile, our cows are in pens, mass-produced. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. slaughtered. Yeah. I was actually listening to um, another podcast of someone where they were talking about food. And they were actually talking about uh, Mughlai cuisine, which a lot of like Mughlai is like cuisine that the Mughals brought to India. And a lot of it has like Uzbekistani roots. So they use a lot of dry fruits and saffron. But apparently Akbar, Akbar, the emperor of uh, the Mughal emperor, he used to spend like $150,000 in current currency a day on food. It was a lot. And these guys would like bring in like the most high end like meats that were like massaged, like Ethan said. And it was, it was crazy. It was. It wasn't just like for him though, right? It was for like the royal family or. Yeah, like basically his, him alone. His entire, his entire cabinet. Like I think 30% of their budget wow. was just like all on food. So it was like it was like, it's like the, um, yeah. not not the Mug- I was gonna say it's not the Mughals but the Mongols. The Mongols ate a lot of meat, yeah. and story goes that's why they were able to conquer China. Yeah, that's not what happened, but <laughs> it's just how the story goes. <laughs> just like before, they're going to war. They have like two chicken legs, just like scarfing them down. Pull out their swords. All right, no, yeah, seriously, yes. Yeah. We got this. Yeah, Mong- Mongols are like one of the most fiercest warriors, like warrior tribes in the world. Like a lot of um, the whole like archetype slash stereotype of the 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 primal tribe that the warrior tribe, like the Apaches, came from Mongolia. Yeah. All right. We could talk about language. How there's there's a sort of abstract conveyance of feelings, right? That is universal. Like if you think of different phrases like um this book is mine. Or in French, watch me butcher this, okay? Uh, oh God, it's it's like you can that's, translate those things. That's the name. No, 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 sorry, I, that's the name. Not, oh God, do this. Set livre, Emien, or something like that, right? Or Emien. And it's like, it's really similar, right? It's like, this book is mine. Yeah. But with things like adjective placement and other syntactical things, like where the subject goes in relation to the adjective, um, what sounds, like, it's like based on anatomy, like what sounds do you produce in order to say these things? Mm -hmm. Is it more guttural? Do you roll the R's 
is it super, I don't know, the thing about English is that it's like super vernacular, right? You can, you can like say three of the words in a sentence and in the right context, you can like understand what it is. Through um, thorough thought. And it's, yeah, it's some garbage like that. <laughs> police, 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 police. <laughs> That sounded like you were saying, please. Um, just like... It's interesting how there's sort of... Like, language is a tool to capture or to communicate feelings, right? Yeah. Or information. And there's a lot of diversity between languages for, you know, different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Like some languages are pretty similar and can be, there's equivalent phrases, right? Mm -hmm. But I don't know exactly why, but I've read that between Temne and like Eskimo languages, there isn't really any equivalence between the languages. And that's, that's like weird to think about, right? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- how diverse do you have to be to like, not be able to really translate between languages without being conversational in the other language, right? I just wanted to say something. I heard Eskimo is like considered a slur, so. Fair enough. I think the proper term that it prefers Inuit. Okay. Because apparently, apparently Eskimo means like people who eat raw meat. That's like used by. (laughs) That's like that's seen as like brutish. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, just okay. Eskimo is a slur. And then there's there's the whole concept of. What are these called? Colloquial expressions mm-hmm. that don't make sense literally, right? They're based on context and like tradition, right? Mm-hmm. So things like hang in there. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, they, they sort, I guess there's an argument for them having. Um, they they still capture the essence of like trying to convey an emotion, right? But it's not it's not literal, right? Mm-hmm. The example I like to use is uh, break a leg. Yeah, how it's literally like to to someone who doesn't know what it means. It sounds like you're wishing harm, but really you're wishing all the best, right? It sounds kind of so funny yeah. in like Punjabi if you say it. Like if you like if you tell if you like yeah. tell your if you like say to your parents, "Papa, I'm a school children, your dad's like lata toda pani." It's like break. Yeah. 
Yeah, like it doesn't make sense in other languages, but in English, like it's just a common phrase. Hmm. Ethan, do you have anything to add? Not in this, no, not really. Hmm. Did you? What did you research on universal behaviors? I looked into love languages, okay. and I'm not a hundred percent sure how universal it is. Like, obviously, everyone has different ways of expressing it. But I wasn't able to find uh, the link between um, love and culture. Like, we can see it, uh, obviously, if we just compare our cultures. Like, you two are more influenced from the East. So, if I had to guess, you guys tend to view relationships more like a, something almost holy. Like, you have to put in a lot, like, pretty much a majority of your life to bring it all the way to marriage. Whereas someone like me, and I believe Alex, I'm not 100% sure, we treat relationships like we want them to be good, but the goal isn't necessarily marriage. Like, that's almost like too far off right. from what is practical in the moment you know mm -hmm. though how we express um our feelings is definitely universal like i there are tests you can take online and let me double check on what the f love languages actually are and these tests usually help identify what your love language, quote-unquote, is. So, the five are physical touch, uh, quality time, gifts, acts of service, and words of affirmation. And those are pretty self-explanatory, but we, we can go over the distinctions here. So, quality time, pretty easy. It's just, you like spending time with the person. It doesn't necessarily have to be, like, just parties or super romantic outings. Just, you really like to be in the other person's presence mm -hmm. and doing stuff together, obviously. Gifts is kind of a two-way street. Some people like giving gifts to the other person, and some people really like receiving them. Mm -hmm. And... It can sound a little materialistic, but from what I've seen, it's more of a, how do you say? It's more of the thought that counts yeah. than actually receiving the object. Mm -hmm. uh, words of affirmation is just talking, complimenting, and like basically saying stuff like, I love you repeatedly. And... Some people really like that, and it never gets old for them. Acts of service can be as simple as, like, opening a door for somebody. Well, And I'm not saying, like, you're flirting with every person that you open the door for, but in, in a relationship, small things like that can add up a lot. And the last one is physical touch. 
which personally I used to think was very shallow. Like, oh, you just want to like have sex all the time. Oh, you just want to kiss. But it's more you either require it or you very much enjoy like the sensation of touch. So it could be as simple as a hug or cuddling or even a high five. Like a- any form of physical touch will suffice for this definition. I think it's interesting think how uh, we've sort of talked about some universal things. Like at the very beginning, I mentioned how seeking touch during intimacy and whatever is like found across cultures, right? Yeah. It, it seems like all of these are reasonably, arguably, like universal behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just something inherently satisfying about doing things like this with somebody that you care about, right? Yeah. And like the on the receiving gifts thing, it's right. Like it, it's less about being material and it's more about like showing that you're thinking about them, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and I think it's quite a bit of it, like, go for it. Oh, sorry. So, quite a bit of it, like, matters in terms of when we talk about just like love languages. And I think a lot of it has to do with what, you know, the society sort of deems as worthy of love, you know? So, I think, I mean, I obviously I can only speak for myself, but, oh, not myself, but like the culture that I've seen in like the East and, Indian stuff when we talk about you know a marriage right it's physical displays of affection like hugging is like uh, very very frowned upon in India and there was actually I was was like reading the news and in Pakistan there was this uh, there's this guy who uh, basically proposed to his girlfriend and they got engaged and he gave her a hug on the campus and they were expelled. So it's, uh, I think a lot of it does have to do with, you know, just the kind of society that you live in. Because when we talk about marriages in the East, a lot of, and when we talk about love in the marriage of con in the context of marriage, if we talk about the man, then a lot of it has to do with the fact that the man has to provide. And I think that would sort of fall under acts of service. And that's how he's supposed to show his, you know, love. Well, I mean, a lot of marriages in, in the East, they're very platonic, for lack of a better word. You know, and I mean, obviously I'm speaking a bit in the past because things are changing now. It's not like that everywhere. It's not like that anymore, but it's, it does still have that aspect to it. The platonic aspect where, where in that you take two people and you just kind of like push them together and you're like, okay, go create a life.
I have to agree with the idea of communicating love by acts of service kind of resonated with me. Mm -hmm. The whole idea that you're making the other person's life easier just sounds so romantic to me. Like, you know, it could be as simple as um, doing the dishes for them when they're just came back from a tired day of work or like you said, opening the door for them. But, and then there's the, the more, I would say, um, the powerful stuff, like, you know, they, they want to get into gardening. So you construct like a greenhouse in your backyard or, or, um, I guess it was also fall under gifts, but like their car is very, very, um, I'd say, um, like it's just rusty and kind of not good anymore. So you save up to, to get them a new one. Like those, those are like the kind of things that I'd say are the most, or for me at least most expressive, like things like touch and giving gifts, even like, it doesn't even have to be romantic love, right? In ancient Greek, they, there were seven different types of loves and like, there, there's love with your parents, love with your friends, love with your spouse, and love with God, all, all sorts of loves. And I think about how gift, for me at least, like gift giving is a love language that I speak with, with my friends. Like I, when it's people's birthdays, I go all out. Just a couple of days ago, it was Trey's birthday, and we literally spent the entire day baking a cake for him. It's, I, I just, it's crazy how hard we, like, it, it is a universal behavior. It We resonate with them. And you guys can, like, if you're comfortable, you guys can talk about what you, what your love language is or what you resonated with. But I guess this is just my, uh, this is just, like, my two cents on the topic. I think it's definitely interesting, just like the how they're like these five very distinct love languages, but how everyone varies so vastly on them. Like, gee, you just said you, you think your biggest two were acts of service and gift giving. Those are like my lowest two. It, like, not to oppose you, it's just my personal thing. Like, I prefer quality time and physical touch a lot so like with friends for example whenever i see them i usually try to like give like for guys it's always like the guy handshake you either go for the bro hug or some random thing you make up on the fly uh and for girls usually i'll like give a hug hello and goodbye and then like I think part of the reason my schedule has been very tight recently is because, like, I really want to spend time with everybody that yeah. uh, I find interesting. Like, i rather do that than, like, buy someone a car, you know? <laughs> um, I, I think it's important to, like, bring out that, um, you know, it's... 
it's not like you can be all like you can like enjoy all five of them right right like everything's cool sometimes it like (laughs) not the greatest wording like (laughs) you enjoy everything to an extent right yeah i guess mine are probably pretty similar to ethan like quality time and maybe words of affirmation but yeah like making an intense effort to spend time with as many people as possible you know it's inherently satisfying Yeah, I think it all does come Gosh, down to like, I think it comes down to like what you value a bit more than the other one. Yeah. So, yeah. I was also going to talk I mean, about. I like, think it's beyond. Like, like I think it's beyond values. Like values, I would think are more like a, a morality thing or a pride thing, but for these, it seems to me more like what you enjoy uh, on a subconscious level. Those don't just, those subconscious things don't just like come out of nowhere though. It's not like they're just born. That's true. I mean, uh, I I think to a level it's influenced from culture. When I say value, I think it's also like what you feel. I think it's also like a sense of like a component of like what's sort of missing in your life so you crave that more or you have you or something like for example if like you don't if you grew up not hearing a lot of words of affirmation when you do hear the word of words of affirmation from other people you tend to hold on to that more you tend to value it more it's not something that you hear all the time that's so that that's kind of what i meant by value is that like it's something that you give a lot of importance to in your own heart I see. I see. But yeah. Yeah, I guess for an example, like I have a sort of a reason for why I said words of affirmation, where I'm pretty insecure about how there's a societal expectation to like make your parents proud and whatever, right? And that will inherently make you proud. So, like, my my pride is based on whether I think that it will make my parents proud, sort of, like, to an extent. Of course, it's, like, partially internal, and it's not that binary, but it's something like that, right? right? So, there's all this, like, negative self talk, like, oh, I am not doing enough because I don't do the things that capitalist society like expects me to do. Like I can't drive it in the 20 and like, I haven't had like a real job yet. And it's like, dude, what are you doing? And seeing stuff like that, that's why stuff like words of affirmation are so important to me because it helps me push past things like that that are sort of inherently irrational 
there's like a little bit of reasoning behind them, but the effect of, you know, you, you should feel bad or whatever because you don't do this is irrational. Yeah, hearing stuff like, oh, you're actually just doing a fine job or whatever, or, you know, I'm happy to know that you're my friend and stuff like that is nice to hear. And I value stuff like that a lot more than somebody else who probably hasn't had much of a problem with pride and whatever. I can understand that. At the beginning, when Ethan said words of affirmation, I was like, hmm. I feel like that one could be a bit polarizing because I know people who are like always, you know, um, what is it, like talking each other up and like in their in a relationship, like they use pet names a lot and say I love you a lot. And then there's people who are just very, they're more like, they don't do that as much. And so I didn't, so I thought like, oh, yeah, words of affirmation might just be a bit more polarized, polarizing, like you either do it or you don't. But like seeing your point of view, it kind of makes a bit more sense now that um, it doesn't have to just straight up be like, oh, I love you. I love you. It could just be like, yo, you're doing good. Hang in there. Or um, yeah. Or even hearing I'm proud of you, I think. Yeah, especially that. Mm-hmm. especially that for my case right yeah and you know it, it it shows when someone who really values that says that to you yeah like it, there's, there's a difference between like that and someone else who just you know says nice yeah, yeah. totally Because I think at the end of the day, everybody, you know, we all do things that we think will raise our level of respect, our level of admiration in the eyes of others, in our, you know, in the eyes of our friends, in the eyes of our family. So I think when, you know, you put a lot of effort into something and then, you know, people just say, oh, nice then I think it's like comes off as like that kind of just went for that kind of just like led to nothing. And especially in, you know, just hearing you put effort in. Huh? And they didn't put effort into that response. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's kind of like, for me, whenever like somebody you know does something for me and I'm very appreciative, it's kind of hard for me to put into words how like appreciative it is. So sometimes like when I say something or when I respond, it might come off as like mundane. But I so I've just sort of gone to like just actually saying that. I can't put into words how much I appreciate this because like I, I physically can't like it's yeah. it's not, it's not like the, the, sometimes when like someone does something for you, whether it's like listening 
when you were, you know, down or when you were ranting or just like understanding what you're going through. You already have like this just extreme labyrinth inside of you or this like just like a bunch of just feelings just jumbled up. And then when someone like is like, you know, they do something for you out of like, you know, that's genuine, then that the sort of the appreciation factor it sort of adds to the jumbledness of it to where it just like kind of just you you don't know how to exactly to phrase your appreciation for that so yeah it's like a limitation of language yeah so Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Okay. So, I I thought this was pretty good. How... Promoting connectiveness. Like, when you think of universal behaviors and stuff like that, it's important to consider the diversity amongst groups right because it's not really universal it's just during our our time which is sort of especially in american culture we are getting increasingly polarized right thinking about things like how we're inherently connected for various reasons despite the differences there's still you know we all still have like human universal behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really valuable in order to keep us from becoming so polarized that some destructive things happen. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, it helps us understand that, you know, we may have like different cultures, but at the end of the day, we're all just. We're all just one people. You know, it's kind of funny. Like, uh, I was at the gym yesterday, right? And this person came up to me. He's like, uh, he saw he was pointing to my uh, my bra, my bracelet, and he's like, uh, he couldn't find the right words for it. So I, I could tell he was like struggling to find the right words, but. Uh, so I kind of forgave him for like saying this, but he said, "Oh well, what are you wearing? I see people of uh, your race wearing that a lot." And I thought it was kind of awkward, like him saying, "Oh, people of your race." I'm like, okay. Uh, but I think I think I think he was like what he was looking for was like people of your community, but he couldn't just he was like thinking for like a good five seconds before he like threw out race. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Right. And I think it just kind of shows like we like, so at the end of the day, like we're one race, right? We're just, we're the human race and we might have different communities and we, I think an understanding of different cultures is important. Like you said, not only to sort of, uh, appreciate their culture, but also to keep in mind that 
we don't need to look everything at an ethnocentric way. We don't need to look at, at everything from the perspective perspective of our own culture and how it defines our values. Right. How like in D- Dungeons and Dragons, for example, like mm-hmm. when you pick your race, human is only one race. Yeah. And there are like sub races, I guess, but well, yeah. pretend that doesn't exist. <laughs> it's like it's not a it's not a focus, right? Yeah. All right. You want to end? And then on? the, and then the races they come together to, like Lord of the Rings, dude. One human, one elf, one dwarf, and four hobbits. Like, they're all coming together to do this amazing thing. Yeah. yeah. And I just want to say, Akash, like, if to you it might have seemed like he was thinking about what to say for five seconds. Yeah. But he had probably been, like, hyping himself up for, like, ten minutes just to approach you and ask you. Yeah, I mean, no, that, that, so, that, that, yeah, I said that. I was like, mad respect yeah. yeah i was like uh so i was like because because yeah. i could tell i could tell it was like the the like he was like he was thinking hard he's like what do i say because he was like i've seen people of your and then he's like what do i say people of your religion i'm not sure if that's a religious thing people mm-hmm. of your color nah that just sounds weird and then before he like got to community a race was there he's like okay no I think that I think that's acceptable. People of your race, I've seen them wear that. And I think the funny thing is, like, yeah, I was wearing it, a it's ma- fine. I, like, I was, yeah, I was wearing a mask, so he couldn't really tell what race I was anyway. But yeah, so I, I was more than happy to explain to him though. That's good, and that's how. I'd like to imagine that that's how things should be. Yeah, exactly. So, Akash, you want to end us off? Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have officially completed our fifth episode of the True Leisure Podcast. Wait, fifth, right? This is fourth or fifth? Fourth. Fourth. Okay, fourth. Ladies and gentlemen, we have officially completed our fourth episode of the True Leisure Podcast for season two. And remember, the next time someone wants to educate themselves about an aspect of your culture, always be accommodating. I think um, in our in our society today, we expect people to be educated, but I feel like a lot of people don't like to educate. I think we should. There's, I mean, there's no harm in it, right? There's no harm in, you know, explaining to someone what, uh, you know, something of your culture is about. Unless, of course, they're trolling, in which case you can completely ignore them. But that being said, I am rambling and I want to end off this, our, this absolutely, completely, just massively riveting discussion with just like good vibes to all of you my blessings and i hope you all have a wonderful wonderful week thank you